0: You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. Later on in this edition, advice on caring for a dying patient
1: in hospital. Diagnosing dying isn't easy. In fact, no doctor can accurately predict when any patient will die all of the time. Now, in
0: a recent BMJ essay, Dave de Broncart states that an online patient community helped save his life. Diagnosed with stage 4, grade 4 metastatic renal cell carcinoma, it was the facts and practical advice he got there that led to him accessing the drug and protocol which cured him. So what are patients getting on the web that they're not getting from clinicians? And how is this changing healthcare? I asked Kelly Young. She's founder of RAWarrior.com, a site where she posts on rheumatoid arthritis and its care and treatment, but also provides space for patients to comment on and discuss these and log their own experiences of the disease.
2: I think what drives people to search online for health information is there's some kind of a gap in the information that they have or there's some kind of a discrepancy between the information that they've been given and their experience. So patients have questions. They have questions about their experience with the disease, maybe with their symptoms or with their side effects, or questions about the treatments that have been prescribed or whether or not other treatments are available. So patients are searching for information. And I know that there are probably some who are searching for support, but it seems that for the most part, information is driving people. And I also think that support is what holds the community together. So that's the difference and that's the appeal of our warriors. They're going to receive that information in a way that they can understand it and um, at the same time in an open and conversational way so patients can say, no, but these are my experiences and they're different. And they know that they're going to be able to be heard and to, to be accepted.
0: Sure, okay. One thing that really interested me about the site was your section that said dealing with doctors. Um, and it's almost as though you're you're priming patients to to get the most out of that consultation. Could you just talk me through why you think it's important for patients to be prepared, you know, to go and see their doctor and, and how you do that with the website. If
2: they say to me, you know, the doctor did an RA test and, and I, I I I was negative, I ask them, well, what blood test did they do? Because there there is not an R A test. So What we would encourage patients to do is to be informed about what blood tests they have had and what their results were and to ask for a copy of that and to read it through and to understand it and to ask questions. And then in the future, if they have another test, then they can keep the copy of that and they can um, recognize the changes and communicate better with the doctor when he says to them, well, it looks to me that your inflammation is down. It, it would be good for the patient to know what the doctor is basing that comment on, especially if it's not being reflected in the patient's experience. If there's no, I was swollen yesterday, my inflammation's not down, but I'm not swollen here in your office. So there is some homework for patients to do, to to learn about those things, but it's, it's not that difficult.
0: Jack West also thinks it's essential that patients are well-informed about their own condition. He's a medical director at the Swedish Cancer Institute in Seattle and also president and CEO of the Global Resource for Advancing Cancer Education, or GRACE. He described the site to me as an educational resource and community where experts post information for patients and caregivers and discuss this with them.
3: Honestly, one of the big reasons I started GRACE was that the field of lung cancer, which is a uh, uh, my leading expertise, was so becoming so complex that it's not trivial for every cancer doctor out in the community to give the optimal, optimal treatment uh, just because it's hard to keep up with all of the developments. and uh, But there's nobody more motivated than the patient and caregiver to learn as much as they can as long as there's good quality information out there. In this new world, when we are subdividing groups of patients more and more, people with a particular mutation in 1% of lung cancer, you're not going to find 50 of them in the same city ever. Um, But these people are finding each other online and sharing information about a trial they're doing and they're communicating with each other in discussion groups about rare mutations And they're traveling to wherever that trial is offered and and enrolling on these trials to get the research done faster.
0: So how do you see patients being so informed about their condition actually change the nature of of how they interact with the the formal healthcare system? And what do you think the role of the the doctor is?
3: I see it as becoming a much more bidirectional model where it's no longer doctor tells patient what to do patient nods and expresses thanks and unquestioningly follows that advice um, or doesn't. But now doctor and patient talk together about here's what we think we know, here's what we what remains unknown. Patient may come in with a lead or two that they're asking about and the doctor can offer advice and, and thought because there's definitely a role for experience in it. But ideally, you are now much more of a team on equal footing where you use all of the resources of a person's time and interest to their advantage.
0: Jack also thinks patients need to be aware of the options to make sure they're getting what's best for them.
3: The patients don't always inviolably get the best treatment and that may be because there is a misalignment of incentives. The doctors may get paid more for giving IV therapy uh, than an oral therapy that may be more effective. It may be more toxic and doctors may be reluctant to deal with the headaches of a more challenging treatment, even with greater rewards for the patient that they might be eager to sign up for if they knew about. Or they just might not know about these treatments because they're very new. But for all of these reasons, they There are real gulfs between the best treatment out there and what people actually get right now. At least in in many places, uh, lung cancer patients, for instance, get far less priority than breast cancer patients because it's just uh, not as politically or socially accepted. If patients and caregivers can learn the the data out there, then they can advocate. And if it'll win or lose on the merits of the argument.
0: Kelly is also concerned about discrepancies in care and is working with the Mayo Clinic to utilise patients' experience of rheumatoid arthritis to come up with solutions. I met Dr. John
2: Davis, uh, the Director of Research um, at the Rheumatology Department, and we have been putting together a study to identify gaps in care. And we plan to start with a pilot survey to ask patients questions about their experiences with the disease and with the, the clinical encounters. For example, are their joints counted? Do they complete a questionnaire? And if, if their uh, disease is measured in these ways, how often does that happen? Things like that.
0: Okay, so so really trying to, to get care to be more consistent.
2: Right. What we want to do is identify Know how how closely it seems that the care that's being given is to the guidelines and what those gaps might be, and then of course hopefully begin to identify ways to to improve that and
0: address that from the patient side or from the clinician side. So the online sharing and discussion of care, research, and experience can be incredibly valuable for patients. However, Jack thinks that doctors need to be more involved.
3: We know that people are going to be going online to find information these days. You know, it's probably this way in the UK as well as in the US that 60, 80 percent of adults are now seeking healthcare information online, and it's really just a question of what will they find there. If 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 doctors and the most qualified experts don't put out good information, they're going to find less high-quality information and potentially follow that. And the the experts can't just abstain because it's they, they don't want to deign to be participating in the online community. I mean, people are going where they're going to go, and we can either have a role in that conversation or lose that opportunity. I, I think that, unfortunately, most online communities, and by that I mean nearly all, are either – for patients and caregivers or for docs, but never the twain shall meet. They don't intersect, and I think that the, the real value is to recognise that we are not opposing communities or alternate communities, but should be interacting communities.
0: Of course, patients helping shape their own care after becoming better informed online is just one route to putting them at the centre of health care. Kelly sees many more opportunities.
2: Well, I think opening the door to patients to participate and have conversations at scientific meetings or in preparation of guidelines or in creation of
1: trial standards,
2: at, at, at you know, at every different level, having patients present instead of having someone talk about patients but actually bring patients to bring the patient perspective and have the patient voice there. I think that's the most important thing. For example, I know that the ACR. I, I read last week that they are uh, preparing once again to uh, examine and establish uh, new treatment guidelines, and this is an opportunity for patients to participate and and have a voice. When I think about medical school or or CME, I think there are so many opportunities the way that doctors are educated that patients could have a voice if we could if we could. Um, you know, crack that door open and get more and more patients. I know that that, that does, it has happened some in Canada and in the U.K. And, and a little bit in the United States. I hear about it here and there. But I think if it were if it were more part of the program to bring patients in so that, you know, prospective doctors, new and young doctors, could hear from patients about their experiences with, with different diseases, it would give them a, a different understanding of it than, than they have from just reading a few lines in a book. And then I think also in publications, We've had letters published from um, some of our members and also from myself in the rheumatologist or, you know, in other medical publications. You know, that's a message to doctors when, you know, they open that publication or they open that email and they see that
0: a patient voice um, is being included. That's, That's a message to them that they might need to turn in that direction. Thanks there to Kelly Young and Jack West. Their sites are rawarrior.com and cancergrace.org, respectively. You can read Dave de Broncart's essay, How the e-patient community saved my life, on bmj.com and look out for a special package on patient participation will be running soon. Now, Helen MacDonald, an assistant editor at the BMJ, gets some advice on caring for a dying patient in hospital. All junior doctors need to know how to care for a dying patient.
4: In the UK, genius can get help from the Liverpool Care Pathway, but it depends on clinical context and only deals with the terminal phase and isn't widely used outside the UK. So today I'm joined by Catherine Sleeman, Consultant and Clinical Lecturer in Palliative Care Medicine at King's College London, who's here to impart some wisdom about caring for dying patients applicable to wherever you practice. I was really struck by the fact that you say more than half of the complaints to our Care Quality Commission in the UK concern the care of a dying patient, and that many people dying in the UK have unmet needs, because surely caring for dying patients is something that we should all be able to do, um, because it happens everywhere for all specialties and all levels of doctors. And having looked through your work, I can see there's a lot of things we can improve on, beginning with how we diagnose dying. Why are we so bad at something so basic?
1: Hi. Um, I think diagnosing dying, it's basic in the sense that we're all going to die at some point and absolutely all doctors at some point will care for dying patients. So in that sense, it's extremely important. But actually, diagnosing dying isn't easy. In fact, no doctor can accurately predict when any patient will die all of the time. And it's actually a skill that really develops over the years with experience and practice.
4: So what are your tips on, on picking up on some clues that someone might be
1: going to die soon? When patients are at the very end of their lives, it's usually pretty clear that that's the case. Um, they will be unconscious or less conscious. They may have Uh, physical signs such as Cheney Stokes breathing or very cold peripheries. So that's when patients are really imminently dying with perhaps a couple of hours, a few hours to live. Actually the thing where the skill lies is picking up on patients who are dying earlier than that so that we can give them time to express their preferences and we can attempt to meet those preferences.
4: So if we were to try and do this, to try and pick up on patients who are dying a bit sooner rather than people who are very clearly dying? What kind of signs might we watch out for there?
1: Okay. So I think some important background information is that every junior doctor, irrespective of the specialty they ultimately choose, will look after patients who die. More than half of all deaths in this country occur in hospital. So that's about over 250,000 deaths in hospital, and it's the junior doctors who will be providing the bulk of the day-to-day care for those patients. And this is why it's so important that juniors feel confident that they understand their role in caring for the dying. When patients are admitted to hospital, probably before we even think about diagnosing dying, a really important thing is for doctors to identify patients in whom dying may be a possibility, this admission. You're not saying, yes, this patient is dying, but you've just flagged that patient up as someone who potentially could deteriorate and die as part of this current illness that's being treated. Patients who are deteriorating from conditions like cancer, where the trajectory of decline at the end of life is characteristically smooth, in those patients, it's often simpler to identify that patient that they have perhaps days or weeks left to live because there's a an almost linear pattern of deteriorate physical deterioration over time. Diagnosing dying is much more difficult in patient whose conditions are characterized by relapses and remissions. So, for example, people with COPD, people with heart failure, where they'll have a relapse which they recover from, but probably not back up to baseline. Now in those patients, diagnosing when that patient may be dying is much harder because of course you never know when the next relapse will happen and you never know whether the next relapse will be the one they don't recover from. Mm. So in those patients it can be particularly difficult to identify dying. On the whole, a pattern of general physical deterioration over weeks or months is often a good indication that patients may be coming towards the end of their life but a key thing is the reversibility of that deterioration. Clearly patients can deteriorate from chest infections but if that chest infection is reversible with antibiotics they improve. Obviously those patients aren't dying. Reversibility is a key thing to consider whenever making that decision.
4: And a really important point for junior doctors, taking those very detailed histories as people are coming in, yes, considering particularly collateral information from the family, exactly. and from perhaps carers or other exactly. staff, or GP. Exactly.
1: Brilliant. And so alongside the treatment of that illness, you, identifying that this was a, p- a possibility, would prompt doctors to think about advanced care planning, think about ceilings of treatment, discuss this with the patient and or their family and mm. carers.
4: Now that might be a bit tricky for us juniors because these are quite difficult conversations to have and quite uncertain conversations as mm. well. Have you any thoughts on what types of phrases or tips you might have for broaching, talking about death or the fact that dying might be a possibility?
1: The key thing that you said is that it's uncertain. And I think communicating the uncertainty is one of the most important things. Mm-hmm. Good communication is actually the hallmark of palliative care. And learning how to communicate effectively comes again with experience. So don't expect to be able to have these conversations by yourself. Don't expect to be the person having these conversations on your first day in the job. But develop your skills through observation, through sitting in with your consultant when they're having these sorts of conversations, through feedback and reflective practice to build up these skills over time. Mm.
4: Another symptom that tends to come up as your talking to relatives is often a concern that because the patient's not conscious anymore, they're not eating and drinking anymore, um, and they get worried that they could be becoming dehydrated and feel very uncomfortable. Mm. How do you tend to approach conversations about hydration and nutrition at the end of
1: life? I think one of the important things to remember is that dying is a natural process, and during that process, people tend to eat and drink less and that can be quite normal and not cause any discomfort. But it's a very difficult subject because of course we all think of food and drink as, well, they're essential to our lives. So the most important thing to do is assess the patient and see how are they? Do they look uncomfortable? Do they look thirsty? Do they seem dehydrated or do they seem fluid overloaded? It's absolutely acceptable to give parenteral fluids, usually subcutaneously, we wouldn't do that normally if there were signs of fluid overload because we would consider that that would cause more harm than good, but we would always consider it. For patients who are fluid overloaded but appear to be thirsty and unable to drink, then adherence to very rigorous mouth care is absolutely essential. So keeping the mouth, the lips and the tongue moist with sponges or tiny sips is really important. And that can be something that's quite rewarding for relatives to
4: be involved in yeah, as well, can be. I guess. Yeah. So when you've, you've got someone perhaps they're tucked away in a side room and it's been decided that they are reaching the end, um, one thing which I think is quite challenging as a junior doctor is knowing what you're going to do on a day-to-day basis because there's a general structure to what you expect to do on a ward round and you sort of burst in and say how are you doing today Um, and you've got your presenting complaints and your past medical history and there's a very nice structure to it and with palliative care it all goes a bit out the window because the goals have changed and the types of questions you're asking and to look after that patient might need to be quite different
1: what what tips would you give for juniors about what they should be doing as the basics? That's a really good question. And there is a structure to taking a palliative history. But you're right, it's a very different structure to the one that everyone learns in medical school about presenting complaint and history of presenting complaint. Yeah. If it's thought that a patient is dying, really identifying that heralds a shift in the focus of care away from treatment of their diagnosis and towards their quality of life and their comfort. I rarely speak to patients about what happened three months ago and six months ago. And it's much more focused on today. And the structure we generally use, which I think is really useful for students to keep in the back of their minds, is thinking about symptoms in four main domains. Mm. Physical problems, social problems, psychological and spiritual issues.
4: Well, that's very helpful. And what... I suppose physical is what is often focused on in hospital. And if you were to pick out some of the key things to look after in that domain, what types of questions would you ask about someone's physical health when they're dying?
1: So there are about five or six physical symptoms which are very common at the end of life and which I almost always ask of patients. Almost like your sort of review of systems. Yes, exactly. So the first is pain. Yeah breathlessness constipation nausea and vomiting and we also we wouldn't particularly take a history about agitation but it's another important sign at the end of life which is important to pick up on and the other one is respiratory secretion so um called death rattle colloquially
4: mm. Mm. and and So thinking about the other domains, the social and the psychological and the spiritual, what do you think are the key questions to really get out there?
1: The social history in palliative care is is quite different to what students would think is the sort of general social history. So I'm less interested, I am interested in where people live and who they live with and how many stairs they've got. Mm -hmm. But actually in a patient who's dying, who you think may not even leave hospital, it's more other questions become much more relevant. So for example, who supports you and who do you support? Because remember that often people who are dying may have young children. They may care for elderly relatives. So it's really important to get a good sense of the family structure. In addition to that, we would also ask more in-depth questions about patients' affairs and business. So for example, have patients made a will? Do they need help facilitating this process?
4: Yeah, Those are really, really good tips and probably things that you wouldn't necessarily think to ask straight away. Um, What about spiritual and psychological type questions?
1: So spirituality is a really, really important part of palliative care and caring for dying patients. For many patients, religion becomes very important at the end of life, but of course, spirituality encompasses much more than religion. And although it may be appropriate to simply ask a patient or ask the family, are you religious? Actually, that might be a bit limiting for patients who aren't particularly religious, but have a very strong sense of spirituality. The sorts of questions that I find really useful are very broad, very open questions, like for example, How do you see the future? Where do you find strength? That's a useful question. Yeah, very good. Um, So if you're looking after this patient on the
4: ward and it all just feels like you've got a a few too many problems to handle or you're you're a bit stuck, when do you involve a specialist in
1: palliative care? That's a really good question. Most acute hospitals now do have a specialist palliative care team. On the whole, they will consist of clinical nurse specialists with consultant cover but possibly not on site all the time. And then some of the bigger teams may also have specialist palliative care social work support and chaplaincy support too. I think the key thing for juniors to remember is that palliative care specialists are on the whole very approachable. So no one will mind if you pick up the phone to discuss a patient. Palliative care teams tend to see patients based on need rather than diagnosis more often now. So if you have a patient who has problems in any of those four domains, physical, psychological, spiritual, or social, that you feel that your level of basic palliative care isn't really addressing, then it would be appropriate to call the palliative care team. Now, they may uh, be able to give you some telephone advice. They may come for a one-off visit, or they may feel that they need to see the patient daily in an ongoing manner. But I think the message for juniors is don't hesitate to ask for help. And that's really
4: interesting because there is this perception, perhaps a misplaced perception, to some extent that if the patient doesn't have a diagnosis or it's not clear that they're completely palliative, perhaps you're giving some kind of active treatment, that that would preclude you from calling on the help of specialist services so it's useful to know that that's really not the case.
1: It may be that the palliative care team come and say look I don't think this is really a patient for us to see regularly but here's some advice about the pain control or they may say you may need to contact the acute pain team about this pain control because it's out of our jurisdiction Mm -hmm. but calling for advice I think is always helpful.
0: Catherine Sleeman thank you very much. Dr. Sleeman has written a comprehensive, competent novice article on this topic, so take a look at that for more. That's everything from us this week. Next Friday, we'll be looking at how what day of the week an elective procedure is carried out on is related to 30-day mortality. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.